a conversation about the legal issues that matter to you. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Hi, Pam. Pam, nothing is as controversial in politics today or as live and controversial in law, I think, as abortion. I think that's right, Joe, and we are really lucky today to have with us both lawyers and doctors to talk about uh, abortion, where we are today, both medically and legally. And Joe, since you're an actual doctor, why don't you introduce the doctors? Well, I'm a doctor, but not the type that can prescribe drugs, which is the fun type. But we have two of those kinds of doctors, uh, Jen Conti and Erica Cahill. They are by day OBGYNs at Stanford. Uh, they see uh, patients, they're assistant clinical professors in the medical school. And at night, they are hosts of a terrific podcast, The V Word. So type in The V Word and Stanford, and you'll get their podcast. Jen, Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. And when Joe says type in the V word, he means not type in the whole word. Type in the words the, V, as in Victor, and then word. And that's the way you'll get to the podcast, which really is terrific. Um, I get to introduce the lawyer because I'm a lawyer. The lawyer with us today is Jane Schachter. She is a professor of law at Stanford. She's an expert on statutory interpretation, on constitutional law, and on law and sexuality. So we're really lucky to have you with us today as well. So thanks for being here. So, Jane, if you could walk us through a little bit, what's the legal regime that governs abortion in the United States today, and how did we get there? Yeah, it's been changing over the decades, and it is probably the most controversial area that the Supreme Court is operating in right now. And the story starts in 1973 when the Supreme Court decides the landmark case of Roe versus Wade and says that a woman, that case says that a woman has a fundamental right to choose to terminate her pregnancy. And in the first tri- two trimesters, she may make that choice. Uh, and the only, the only regulations that the uh, state can uh, require are those that protect the woman's health. Uh, in the third trimester, says Roe, uh, the the state can uh, ban abortion as long as it it, it uh, protects the woman's uh, life and health. So what the what the Supreme Court did in that case was it elevated the right to choose an abortion to status of a fundamental right, which is the the strongest kind of right the law recognizes, gives the government the least latitude to restrict the right, um, and that set off decades of skirmishing. And both the Reagan administration and the first Bush administration uh, asked the Supreme Court to overrule Roe versus Wade. Um, and in 1992, the Supreme Court declined to overrule Roe versus Wade, but they substituted a new legal test that substantially weakened Roe versus Wade. And that test continues to apply today. And that says that the um, state may not impose an undue burden on a woman's right to choose to have an abortion. And that's an open-ended term. We can talk about that if you like. Um, and there's been a number of cases uh, since then. Um, and, and, and where we are now, I think, with the two recent conservative appointments to the Supreme Court is uh, lots of wondering about whether Casey will be overruled, taking whatever was left with Roe along with it. Uh, and we'll be back to where we were in 1972 when states had the right to, to ban abortion if they saw fit. I mean, one thing that kind of has struck me about the 
uh, laws restricting abortion over time is there have been some interesting shifts in how the states have approached this. So the early laws post-Roe all seem to be focused on the state's interest in protecting either actual or potential human life. And so those were fetal protective laws in a way. Um, Starting in the mid-2000s, a lot of the states seemed to have shifted grounds. And rather than claiming that they were protecting the fetus, they claimed they were protecting the woman. Um, and so the, if you want to say a little bit about the last case the Supreme Court had up there, which was a case called Texas Women's Health, um, that was a case where Texas uh, passed a bunch of laws that were designed to restrict abortion, but which the state claimed were designed to protect women's health. Yeah, the um, whole women's health case, uh, which was decided in Justice Kennedy's uh, last term on the court, uh, concerned uh, what, what are commonly called trap laws, targeted uh, regulation of abortion providers. And those kinds of laws claim to be protecting women by imposing certain requirements. In that case, it was a doctor who performs uh, an abortion has to have admitting privileges at a, a nearby hospital. Uh, and the, the, the standards that apply to uh, surgical facilities for day surgery, basically, have to be met in abortion uh, facilities. The problem with those laws is they didn't make any sense at all in the context of uh, uh, of abortion. And, yeah, and, and can we bring in our, our doctors to talk about, when we talk about abortions today, what are we talking about when it comes to abortions? And when we think about these laws, you know, why doesn't it make sense to require a doctor to have admitting privileges? Why doesn't it make sense to comply with surgical center Yeah, laws? you know, so I'll back up and say we are both OBGYNs. We're also both family planning trained physicians, which means this is our specialty. We are abortion providers, complex um, abortion and contraception care is our thing. And when we talk about trap laws in particular with people, it's hard because at face value, this seems very pro-woman, right? Of course, I want to have an abortion in a facility where the hallways are wide enough, where there's an ample light, where it's a surgical suite. That seems like it's the safest thing for the person. But in reality, these are arbitrary laws, as you're saying, that are only aimed at shutting down these facilities. It doesn't matter if I provide an abortion in a facility where the hallway is, you know, 15 inches smaller than the next facility over. It doesn't matter if I have admitting privileges at the nearest hospital. We have laws uh, for our emergency rooms, Imtala laws is what they're called, that already protect people. So if a patient has um, a hemorrhage or something goes wrong and she needs to go to the local emergency room, the emergency room doctor can't turn her away and say, oh, you are a patient of Dr. So-and-so's who's an abortion provider, so you can't have care here. That's totally illegal. So it, it is it doesn't matter if that provider has an admitting privilege at the next hospital over. She's going to get care if she needs it. So they're totally arbitrary laws. And and one of the things that I wonder if you could walk our listeners through, because I think a lot of people, their image of abortions is it's a major surgical procedure. But there are uh, a lot of abortions now that are what are called medical abortions. And then there are first trimester versus later trimester abortions. And they're quite different from each other. If you could kind of just walk us through what does it mean to talk about uh, performing an abortion? Sure. So abortion is one of the most common procedures performed in the United States. About one in four women will have an abortion by age 40. So, it, And there are about one million abortion procedures performed every year. About a third of those in the first trimester right now happen through medication abortion. And that's the highest rate of medication abortion that we've had in a really long time. And we um, can talk about why that is. But medication abortion is basically taking a series of two medications that really induce the uterus to contract and expel or miscarry the pregnancy tissue. And that can look really different than some of the other procedures. 
So this is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking about legal and medical issues surrounding abortion with our guests, both from the medical school and from the law school. When we talk about the medical abortion, Erica, is that like Plan B? Is that like the, a name of the, when people are thinking about what these Yes. Drugs are. No, no, it is not Plan B. So Plan B or emergency contraception, Plan B is one of the brand names for emergency contraception mm-hmm. pills, um, is, some, is often confused with medication abortion. But medication abortion is typically a combination of two medications, one called mifepristone and one called misoprostol. And taken in sequential order, they cause the uterus to start contracting and expel the pregnancy. Plan B or emergency contraception works very differently and disrupts, um, does not disrupt an already uh, pregnancy that's already in place. That stops the the um, blastocyst from like implanting. Is that what it there does? are different mechanisms for different types of emergency contraception? But actually, typically, it affects the luteal surge or sort of ovulation. It disrupts ovulation from happening, so it's even before there's a blastocyst or an embryo created. And so, a third of the abortions are medical abortions, and that's those are very early. Yeah, so medication abortion in this in the United States, the FDA has approved up to 10 weeks gestation. So that's the end of the first trimester we typically think is around 13 weeks gestation. And so it's even before the end of the first trimester. And, and, and what percentage of abortions are first trimester? So the vast majority, actually, when we talk about um, abortions in this country, it's really... I like that you asked, like, when we say the word abortion, like, what do people envision? And I think that you look at the conservative right and, and a lot of people who are anti-choice, and they they want this image of abortion that is further along in pregnancy to sort of pop up into your head immediately. But that's not the case. The vast majority, we're talking like 89% of abortions happen in the first trimester. And so it's really, really a large population of people who are undergoing safe, normal uh, everyday medical procedures, um, maybe not what you you know think when you hear from the other side. And what would be some of the reasons if there's a second uh, trimester abortion? Yeah, it's I, it's a question we get a lot because um, I, I think people are trying to understand who are these people that end up having abortions after 20 weeks, for example, um, when you see these these laws being put into place. There's a number of reasons, um, but I think one huge one that I like to hit on a lot is access to care. Access is a huge issue in this country, not here in California so much, but there's a lot of places in this country where you can't get an abortion so easily. It's, there's not a provider or a clinic nearby. And so now, in addition to trying to find a place to have an abortion, trying to get the funds to get there, you're pushed back weeks and weeks and weeks, and maybe you didn't find out you were pregnant until you know a few weeks later to begin with. And now you're past 20 weeks. That's a huge issue. And they've actually, there's research that shows from some of the Texas laws that second trimester abortions actually increased in Texas after some of these trap laws were put into place because people had restricted access, which is sort of the opposite of what these laws purport to do. So that's very telling in some ways. Another reason why people have these later abortions is because of fetal anomalies that are diagnosed later. So in pregnancy, we typically have an ultrasound looking at the anatomy um, to make sure the brain is normal, the heart is normal, all sorts of things like that. And we really can't see those structures until about 18 or 20 weeks. And that's the first time we have any ultrasound. So then if you're going to hear about the prognosis or other things, then it could even take longer weeks to make that decision. Those are some of the most traumatic and sort of devastating decisions because people are typically really desiring of those pregnancies. You know, I want to come back to the law a second, Jane, and just bring up one other thing that from a 
distance, it looks like, that's been happening over the last decades, but even more recently, is that while we have this semi-established Supreme Court jurisprudence and people are wondering if the new court's going to change its mind, states seem just bent on passing statutes that don't seem to come close to the standards, kind of fetal heartbeat statutes. And I wonder if you could just talk about that and give us a kind of a legal analysis of what's happening here. Yeah, I think up until uh, the member, the recent membership change on the Supreme Court, more of the emphasis among the states that are fighting abortion rights were with trap laws, uh, second uh, bans on second trimester pr- particular procedures or second trimester abortions. But since the membership of the court changed and there's a perception that there's a real chance of getting both Roe and Casey overruled, all bets are off. And so now we have in Alabama the most restrictive uh, law in the country. It hasn't gone into effect yet. It will in a a few months unless it's enjoined, unless a court says it can't go into effect. And that basically says no abortions for any reason at any point in the pregnancy with stiff criminal penalties for doctors unless it's necessary to save the life of the woman. Uh, But then there are these heartbeat bills as well, which which kick in at six weeks and uh, uh, claim that uh, something that is detectable on an ultrasound uh, is a heartbeat, and therefore that's the uh, appropriate time to cut off access to abortion. Many women don't even know they're pregnant uh, at that stage. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking about legal and medical aspects of abortion law. I wonder if we could ask the doctors to apply now in the fetal heartbeat laws, because I know there's a thought, if you could hear a heartbeat, then you've got some viability, there's, there's something to save in a way. Can you talk about that? Yes. I think um, a couple of things are at play here. There is nothing, I want to be very clear, there is nothing medical about when the heartbeat starts that determines why you should or shouldn't have an abortion. This is very strategic and conniving on the other side to sort of pull at your heartstrings, if you will, or find some way for you to associate with that person's, that other person who is not used embryo, let's call it the right word here, you know, and think that we're doing something at a point at which you shouldn't. But you're absolutely right. Most women don't know that they're pregnant that early in pregnancy. Um, so it's it's a totally arbitrary cutoff point. It means nothing medically. So at six weeks, what are we actually talking about? You're talking about a, an embryo. That's how big? That's, I mean... It, less than a centimeter yeah. I mean but but again without getting into semantics the the main point here is that this is about choice this is about someone else's personal and legal decisions not about well let's you know slice this up medically and scientifically and when should we draw the line and, and be able to have this abortion this is this is someone else's personal medical decision and remember in these states we talk about sometimes in OBGYN and in the family planning community we talk about the concept of reproductive justice which talks about seeing this sort of framework of seeing things as more broad than just choice and thinking about the same places where they're passing laws to protect six week embryos they're passing laws to you know cater age children and have not like not support education, all these other things that seem to be less invested in actual living children, too. So, yeah, it's the sort of life begins at conception and ends at birth theory of yeah, the state's protection. Distressing. Yeah. I, and, and it does raise this question because you, you made a 
point of this a, a bit earlier that the number of second trimester abortions went up in Texas after the trap laws went into place because it was just harder for women to find access. I assume also the less sex education is being provided, the less contraceptive care is being provided, the more likely it is that people will have unwanted pregnancies. That's right. And same thing with child care costs and coverage, things like that. We know really affect whether or not people feel financially able to have an unplanned pregnancy carried a term. Things like that really affect those choices. Jane, is there any thought? I mean, all lawyers are kind of watching this court. What do you think they're going to do with these spate of cases with Casey, with Roe? Yeah. So they have a number of um, possible uh, points of intervention and ways of intervening. So right now, there is a, a, a case uh, that uh, where review is sought by the court where they, they could decide to take the case and decide it uh, next year. It's a case that looks almost identical to the Texas case where in Justice Kennedy's last term, that law was struck down. And it requires uh, doctors to have admitting privileges at hospitals. And we've talked about why that doesn't make a lot of sense in this context. Um, uh, and, and there's a Louisiana law that's just like the Texas law. And the Louisiana folks say, no, it's a little bit different. And so you could factually draw a distinction. And so this is going to be the first opportunity for the court, the earliest opportunity for the court either to affirm or overrule that Texas ruling from 2016. And if they're so inclined, I don't think they're going to do it that fast. Revisit Casey. And there are a number of cases obviously coming down the pike. To decide the Louisiana case, you don't have to overrule Roe. You could overrule Texas women's health or you could try and distinguish the case away. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about that and about the legal and uh, medical regulations of abortion uh, next on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM Insight 121. Answers for the legal questions you've been thinking about. This is Stanford Legal. Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Pam and our guest, I thought we would head in the second half to talk a little bit the kind of class angle of this, because, you know, if we go back to the old days, abortion will still be legal in, all, in some states, and I presume the wealthy will be able to fly to those states. What are the real effects, Jane? I see you nodding as I'm saying this. What are the real effects uh, of the poor in a state that has a lot of restrictions? One of the uh, underappreciated things about abortion law, I think, is at a very early point after Roe, the Supreme Court decided that medical assistance funds, uh, Medicaid funds, is constitutional to ban their use for abortion. And what that means is that the people most in need of medical care cannot use their Medicaid to pay for an abortion. So there's already, and that's been a part of the landscape for decades now. So there's already a very deep class bias. And that that varies from state to state. I mean, in California, for example, California does subsidize abortion services for poor women. That's right. So it does does vary by state, but the states that are hostile to abortion rights naturally don't uh, provide coverage. And then you layer on that some of the particular kinds of requirements that states have imposed, a long waiting period, repeated trips to the clinic, things that make it even less accessible if you can, you know, get private money for an abortion, and then you have to go to the clinic two or three times, you have to, you might lose your job, there might be a very uh, long distance from where you are, so so uh, poor women are already at a great disadvantage in terms of their access to reproductive uh, freedom. 
And uh, let me ask our doctors, what do you see? Because I know while you practice in California, you've talked to doctors from other states. And how does it look medically in an Alabama or yeah, a Tennessee? I, I mean, certainly we've got colleagues all over the country who are practicing in places where abortion is harder to obtain. And one of the things we've talked about in California is this idea of abortion tourism. Will there, as these laws continue to unfold, be more and more people traveling to California to obtain their abortion if they have the means to do that because of the limited access. But again, you're talking about now providing care to a select group of people, to people who are not from socioeconomically disadvantaged populations. But even in California, I mean, there are pockets of places here that with decreased access, the Central Valley, for example. And in those places, you do see people um, further along in pregnancy because it took them you know, more time to get time off of work and to, to to get there and paying out of pocket. And so, for example, and it's going to vary depending on where you uh, have your procedure, but like at a Planned Parenthood, for example, where people do have some more access, both a medication and a surgical procedure are going to run you at least $500, which is probably, you know, it's a half of a paycheck for some people. It's very, very uh, significant. And that's especially true when we look at the sociodemographic data for who obtains an abortion or who seeks an abortion in the United States. We know that about two-thirds of people seeking abortion are within 200% of the federal poverty line. That's the 75% of that's people huge. seeking abortion yeah. are within the federal poverty line, which is basically overlaps with who qualifies for Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And so when you're thinking the vast majority of people are actually paying out of pocket for these procedures. And while it may be $500 at Planned Parenthood in the first trimester to have a second trimester abortion at Stanford, for example, can be oh, many, yeah. many so thousands more. of dollars. One more thing to throw in here, too, is that the federal government right now is actively trying to reduce Planned Parenthood's ability uh, to provide abortions by uh, layering on new regulations that um, uh, require them to keep uh, funding separate for abortion and non-abortion services. And apparently the next uh, thing they're going to do is require separate buildings for where the abortion is performed and where other services are performed and you know, it's it's basically an attempt to drive Planned Parenthood out of the space. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking about legal and medical regulation of abortion with two of our colleagues from the medical school and a colleague from the law school. And I want to kind of pivot now to the fact that we know that whether abortion is legal or not in a country doesn't actually affect very much the abortion rate. That is, women who determine that they need to terminate a pregnancy are going to do it whether it's legal or not. And I wonder if the doctors could talk a little bit about what that means going forward. Well, so interesting. It So when you do provide safe legal abortion, the, the rates of uh, um, illegal abortion go down um, and it doesn't do anything to safety. In fact, it makes safety worse. So we know this because we've looked at a bunch of different examples internationally all over the world, really, who have gone back and forth with their um, legal status of abortion. But it is true also that regardless of the laws, you know, since the beginning of time, people have been finding ways to end their pregnancies if they want. And one of the things that we're seeing more and more now is the this idea of self-managed abortion or what we're calling abortion outside of the medical facility. And that's primarily by using medications. So those two medications that Erica mentioned earlier, misoprostol mes- and mifepristone, whether it's through the internet or whether it's through, um, you know, 
other ways, bodegas, we've heard little places like that. And and I think one of the messages we've both talked about a lot is initially you have this gut feeling like people shouldn't be doing that. If we encourage that, we're sort of giving in to the other side and saying, yes, you're right. We don't need doctors and facilities to provide this. But really, this is an issue of harm reduction. And we should be approaching this issue more from a standpoint of women are doing this. How can we help them do it more safely? Because this is the political reality that we've created. Well, and if people try to buy the drugs over the internet, are they getting the actual uh, drugs? Question. So there's there we actually are looking into this. There's a new study that came out where uh, providers and researchers ordered 20 different medications from the internet and then analyzed those to see, is this actually what the medication mm-hmm. says it is? And for the most part, it was. The dosage was slightly different, but not in a dangerous way. Um, they it was like less than. Yep, they cost about hundred to three hundred dollars. They came within about twenty days, and uh, two didn't come at all. But they mostly were what they said they were. So that was interesting to add into this mix that we know people are already doing. Yeah, there's a legal angle on this too because one of the drugs. Um, can't be purchased uh, with a prescription at a pharmacy. You've got to get it in a doctor's office. So uh, the FDA is not making it, uh, access to that drug easier. And then there are various laws that can be used to prosecute women uh, if if they induce an abortion that's in violation of the state abortion laws or there in a handful of states there are specific uh, measures that criminalize the act of a woman uh, inducing her own abortion. There are restrictions on telemedicine, you know, remote... Uh, internet-based visits, which which would make these drugs much easier and make it easier for women to get counseling from doctors about, you know, what to look for in terms of uh, problems after the administration of the drugs and so forth. But the, you know, the, the, um, the pro-life movement is very aware that this is the next wave of kind of uh, abortion activity and is is taking various steps at the state level with state laws to try to minimize access to these medications. So it looks like it's going to be harder and harder to get a little bit like the old abortion clinics where maybe you could find them but be less and less safe because you're not going to be able to easily get the doctor's prescription and then count on a safe dosage. I also think this is another place where a class bias is going to show up because it's going to be poor women and women um, without access to um, uh, legal, easy access to legal representation who are most likely, if, if, if states start prosecuting, to be the, the ones who are prosecuted uh, in this case. And sometimes it's, it's hard to know if it's, if it's a miscarriage or an abortion, right, right. medically. And so... Well, I mean, they are both miscarriages. Right, right, right. right. I mean, but whether it was an yeah. induced whether abortion was, or an act, you know, and, yeah. And of course, that raises a legal issue that I think sometimes people don't think about, which is if this is a crime, then the government has the ability to engage in the kinds of searches to figure out whether this is a crime. And we all remember the stories from Ireland of women coming back to Ireland and being strip searched and cavity searched at the border to see whether they had an abortion in England. Well, this has been uh, a little bit of a a departure for us, Pam, because we've not only had our legal experts here, but we've had medical experts at the same time. And I think all our listeners know what's coming down the pike legally. Everybody's waiting for this court to decide the first wave of cases. And then as we've talked about the second wave, uh, but some of our listeners probably don't know about uh, uh, the Internet as uh, a kind of emergency scape hatch or a lot of what you've told us, Eric and Jen, about uh, 
family planning and abortion today. Uh, the podcast, again, I'm going to do a final plug. It's called The V Word. The V Word in Stanford will get you a Jen and Erica's podcast. It's really terrific. And thanks so much for joining us here on Stanford Legal, here on Sirius XM Insight 121. This has been Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online, or with the Sirius XM app.